Hello and welcome again to a new year and a new season of the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, starting a little later than we'd planned, uh, but officially back now with a great schedule of interviews lined up for 2021. I'm Andrew Bracey, and if you're new to the podcast, in this series we pick the brains of some fascinating doctors who forge their own paths in and alongside medicine. We hear their perspectives, their experiences, some of the lessons they've learned along the way as they share the advice that they have for doctors looking to diversify it or switch direction in their own careers. In this episode, the first for the new year, 2021, I keep saying that, new year, it's already February, it's almost March, um, my guest is Associate Professor Louise Stone. For those unfamiliar with her work, she's a GP with a long history in medical education, research and policy. Her wealth of experience working roles with GPET, ACRAM, um, the health department, her research and teaching roles with the Australian National University Medical School, um, with a large focus on mental health, as well as in clinical practice, has given her some really great perspectives. It was really interesting to hear her philosophies around working in medicine, uh, knowing when to push yourself, knowing your limits, um, and the importance of, as she describes in this conversation, finding your flow. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Associate Professor Louise Stone. Stone, so thank you so much for, for joining the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. Sounds like fun. <laughs> due to look, due to the nature of this series, I, I end up speaking with a number of doctors who wear a number of different hats, and and I think you certainly fall into that category. You're a, a GP, you're a medical med, medical educator um, with you know plenty of a clinical background with teaching, research, and a policy interest in mental health. Can you talk us through? these roles and how you balance them all um I'm, I'm guessing sort of how they sort of weave together to, to make sense for you sure i think it goes right back to the beginning in that when i uh, first started in gp training i realized that three days of clinical general practice is as much as i could do without burning out my first practice was in a small country town where I was the only female doctor within three hours. So I got slightly swamped wow, with yeah. uh, women who'd experienced trauma and delivered their babies and generally was a, a rural doctor. But really, I found it very difficult to um, keep that intensity for a long period of time. And ever since then, I've always had something outside of medicine that enables me to take a bit of a more of a bird's eye view, whether that's teaching or policy or research, because I find it stops me drowning in the complexity of clinical practice. So it's been a number of roles um, in that space and I've rotated them at different times and opportunities have come up. I'd love to say that I had this idea of what I wanted to be when I grew up and I just followed it, but that's not the way it works. <laughs> like many of us, yeah, it was serendipity really that threw them all together. Have you ever felt sort of, especially, you know, when you you talking just then about um you know the feeling you had that, that three days was all that you were going to be able to take did you was there any mm. stigma around that or did you feel any pressure to, to keep going anyway even though that wasn't what felt right for you I was so fortunate the first practice that I worked in as an advanced registrar that I settled in for 10 years was full of extraordinary doctors but I was the first part-timer and at the time I was also having babies so that right. made that slightly more easy but I will say that I was teaching the masters of GP psychiatry which we set up in the 1990s so I had multiple hats but I think it was obvious to everyone that 
the teaching that I was doing in the Masters of um, Psychiatry to Monash was helpful with the mental health load that I was taking on in the practice. And that practice was extraordinarily supportive. I do think there's a minimum stage. A number of times in my life I've felt, you know, clinically inadequate compared to some of my peers who are extraordinary physicians. I've had an extraordinary capacity to work with people who, you know, are outstanding physicians, GP physicians, and I admire their ability to manage chronic disease and all its complexity in a way that, you know, I don't. I I must say that you know, because of my interest in mental health, I've tended to go down that way. And when I see a patient with multimorbid, you know, renal failure and cardiac failure and all the rest of it, I, I don't have that ability to juggle that some of my peers do. But I think we all have limitations and I've been fortunate to work in group practices where we can all lean on each other and I think that's what makes the difference. So what does a what does a regular type of week look for you? Is there such a thing, given, <laughs> given the, 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 the diversity of... of you've got on your plate from from day to day so generally speaking i do three days of clinical practice two days in a regular general practice and one day in a psychology practice where i do sort of secondary care so patients so patients find me directly or gps refer to me for something complex because of the shortage of psychiatrists in canberra it's very difficult to get a psychiatrist appointment and there's a lot of patients that fall between you know, they're not sick enough for public psychiatry, but they're too sick for private. So they fall in the middle and, you know, it's very difficult to get services. So I'm cheap and easier to get into mm. compared to psychiatrists. So um, I'll see those patients a day a week. I have two days a week at ANU and that can involve, well, it does involve um, um, teaching work. So I'll teach medical students, but also committees and things. So I sit on, you know, I'm deputy chair of an ethics committee, for instance. Um, I'm involved in the advisory committee on the Australian Centre of Values-Based Healthcare. And then there's a whole lot of bits and pieces which get shoved in the interstices, I suppose, in the bits and the gaps between all of that. Mm. So, you know, I sit on the ACT Medical Board. Um, I do quite a lot of teaching. I teach you know, I get invited to teach in all sorts of programs. I run Akron's mental health teaching, um, one of their programs, that sort of thing. And, yeah. and I sometimes get asked to do guest speaking on bits and pieces that are involved. And, and then there's some work that doesn't get picked up by any of that that are love projects. And I think one of the things that I realised early in my career is that there's an awful lot of pro bono work. And once I called it pro bono work and I realised that this was my that my voluntary work for the community was, you know, the research I do for nothing or the teaching I do for nothing or the adolescents I see who are sleeping in their cars. And I decided how much of that work was going to be part of my life. It, mm. it made it easier for me not to feel resentful about it. <laughs> and you feel like yeah. you, that's sort of helped, you know, it sounds like that's, that's really sort of helping balance things out for you. You feel like you've got that pretty much where you want it at the moment? No, life's like a tightrope. You're constantly readjusting and, you know, I'm forever sort of imbalancing one thing against the other. But one of the things that I do think is that I have found that I burn out when I can't enact my values. So if I'm in a workplace where um, the red tape is such that I can't be authentic or compassionate or, you know, I can't care for patients the way I need to care for them I, I can only do that for so long and I've had a few jobs where I've 
chosen to do the job because someone needed to do it and it was important, but I've known that that will have an end point for me because, you know, I'll burn out. And I accept now that I'm not going to, you know, raise money for the Heart Foundation. I'm not going to be the person who sets up a charity. But from my point of view, my contribution to community is the pro bono work that I do. Mm. And when I accept that and I say, okay, um, this is the time that I will allocate to that work and these are the number of things that I will do um, that are unpaid and are community support, it gives me a freedom to say whether I will or won't take something on and I feel less uh, compelled Mm. to be trying to fit all that into my work. Is that something you try? Is that sounds like a um, really important lesson? Is that something you try and instill in, in your students? Yeah, I do because you know it's a difficult thing in general practice. We all donate an enormous amount of time. We donate time in our paperwork. We donate time in our you know filling in surveys for people, in writing responses to government about their policies, to decide to stay back and and look after someone and bulk bill them and see them for much longer than we than we're paid for. We all do this work. It's not unique to us, but in general practice, it is particularly chaotic. Mm. I think as a woman, it's tricky because we know that women GPs are paid significantly less. I think it's about a third less than their male colleagues because of the emotional labour that we essentially give away. And a lot of that is community expectation, that a lot of people think that lady doctors are going to be kinder and more compassionate and more caring, and that comes with it a whole lot of emotional labour. And so I have come to look that full in the face and decide honestly what I'm prepared to do and what I'm not prepared to do. And I've found that that helps me not become resentful and not experience that moral distress of, not being able to keep things up and to put boundaries around it so that I don't go quietly broke. Um, decide what financial yeah, yeah. Um, investment I'm prepared to make on behalf of my patients and to try and put some degree of boundary around that yeah. so that the balance doesn't get to be so much that I'm working 100-hour weeks for 40 hours of pay. Yeah, yeah. So I guess rewinding... Um, which I like to do on this one, on this, in this podcast. How how did you get to this point? Because obviously it wasn't always, you know, these are a lot of, you've, you've spoken already about a lot of the lessons and, and things that you, you've mm. learned along the way. What was your journey into deciding to study or pursue a career in medicine? Um, I think we before we started recording, you sort of mentioned that it wasn't always a dream for you. How, how did medicine become the path? Yeah, it's interesting, really. I I came to a position of great ignorance, I think. I grew up in a community where um, it wasn't okay to be bright. It wasn't okay to to want to have academic ambition. You know, a working-class community, really. My, My family were very supportive, but I never had anyone in my family who'd been to university before me. So I think there was... Um, there was also another step that there was only one scholarship that I could get in in Wollongong where I grew up mm. and trying to get that scholarship was my pathway to academic work. So there was an awful lot of pressure. I had an awful lot of pressure, mm. you know, one scholarship in this huge city. So it meant that um, my years at high school were incredibly driven. I did an awful lot of co-curricular work. I had to work incredibly hard. 
And when I sort of looked at careers and I chose medicine, I don't really think I was letting myself, I knew what I was letting myself in for. But I also thought, well, I can't just do one degree. So I did arts medicine and did psychology at night as well. And that was really uh, a crippling workload. I had 40 contact hours a week. It was crazy. And in my second year, I, I caught glandular fever and became very sick and Really, there were no supports. There were no sort of sense of, I wonder why this student is falling asleep in a yeah. nine o'clock lecture every day. Um, and no one really suggested that I see anyone. It didn't occur to me. Um, and so <laughs> for the whole year, I just had this dreadful year and failed second year, and it was a complete disaster, and it was all a mess. And I think um, when I went back, it wasn't really until I started seeing patients that I had the great sense of, Actually, I think this is where I belong. In fact, what really happened was I got conceded passes all the way through medicine and got a high distinction and a whole lot of medals for general practice and went, oh, well, I guess that's where I need to be then. (laughs) Um, I also found Prince Alfred. I was at Prince Alfred Hospital because not because I was one of the bright Prince Alfred students, so they tended to take the cream of the crop, but because I had to be on campus for my arts lectures. And so... Um, Prince Alfred was, at the time, a very conservative, very hierarchical, very male-dominated community where I felt extremely out of place. And I fled from Prince Alfred to Broken Hill and decided that I would do a term as as a flying doctor with a flying doctor service, the best thing I ever did. The nurses taught me all my practical skills that I knew nothing about. Mm. I went out there and said, I know nothing, please teach me, which was (laughs) genuinely humble. (laughs) I genuinely felt like I knew nothing and I needed to be taught, so they taught me everything. And I guess that's where I got a passion for rural practice and I landed in a small rural town in Gippsland, Victoria and started um, my career down there. Um, then then after, I guess after that, I, I scared myself and insisted on making myself into a rural proceduralist, which I found very threatening. Um, and I never delivered a baby without a great sense of relief that the baby was safe and well. I never got to that, isn't it lovely to be delivering babies? Always, isn't it terrifying? But anyway, set up a women's clinic down there, did all that, had my kids. And then one of my children became very unwell and we had to relocate somewhere that had tertiary care. So I landed in Sydney in the middle of the Olympics trying to find somewhere to live, which was interesting, and uh, and took a completely different direction from there. So... Some of those, you know, you, you've spoken about a lot of quite um, hectic and, and stressful um, experiences mm. that you've been through during that period. Is that partly, did that have any bearing on your decision to get involved in GP training and try and help the, the generations of doctors coming behind you and, and, and to have a, a slightly better experience? Or what, what was the, um, was there any sort of link there or was it just something that you got interested in? I always loved teaching. Um, I've been teaching forever. In fact, I was six years old when they pulled me out of class and told me that um, I could go and start teaching English, which was interesting. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's three of us born in Australia in my primary school. So, um, you know, I've been teaching all my life and I think I always had a passion. Look, to be really honest, it was a skill that I had and I mm. think every GP has to be a good teacher. In fact, most doctors have to be good teachers, I think. For me, it was more about the case that I was very pragmatic. I had a child who had a serious chronic illness. It had, you know, major numbers of hospitalizations. And I I wasn't sure when she would land back in hospital. So yeah. 
she was a child who was in and out of hospital all the time. Um, every time that happens when you're in clinical practice, you have to cancel a list. So I was looking at different careers that would have more flexibility and I ended up with GP Synergy, which at that stage had three people working for it. Now it's at this enormous organisation and um, I was the fourth employee. And um, I really went in there because it was a skill that I had. I'd taught a master's program before. It was something I, I knew how to do and it was something that was flexible, to be honest. Mm. Um, but it felt like coming home. I'd love to teach forever and it was that step out it was that ability to do that meta position I worked clinically on the weekends I worked at GP Synergy on the weekdays when I wasn't doing the child wrangling of young children yeah. of whom was very sick so I think for me it was much more that but as time marched on and I got more senior in those medical education roles and ended up being the senior medical advisor for GP training I've mm. got to say it was um, the faith of the medical education community, I've become part of a very large community of very supportive, passionate medical educators. I had that opportunity. It felt like one of us had to do that job. And I was very fortunate that it was me. But it was always this sense of, I've always felt that you lead best from underneath. It's all about community building. It's all about creating communities of practice. And being the one in the community that is entrusted to sit around the table and bring those concerns to the table, I couldn't have done that without having that community behind me. And there's many, many more super skilled people in that community, many people who have skills I'll never have. So it was, it was a great privilege, I think, um, to hold that role for 10 years and to take that role into the Department of Health, which meant becoming a bureaucrat. And I don't think that would have occurred to me if it hadn't been um, my responsibility is to hold medical education and training in general practice into the Department of Health yeah. until it can be handed back to the colleges. Um, so that was a, a very unusual experience. I can't imagine. Um, <laughs> just staying on that topic of your, your experience and in, 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 in passion for general practice, in sort of reading about your, your background, your work, and your obviously your PhD, um, which examines unexplained medical symptoms. And, and I was fascinated with the section on your website where you talk about this, where you've got um, some of this your writings on this. And it's you lead with this mm. great quote from Dr. Donald Schoen, who is the architect of uh, reflective practice, which a philosophy I hadn't specifically heard that much about myself until I was reading your, your writing, it's very briefly, it's essentially a practice of continuous learning through reflecting on your own actions, both reflectively and reflexively. Am I getting that sort of vaguely right? I'm sure there's a much better explanation that you could probably give. <laughs> yeah, look, it's, it's a difficult thing, but the thing to realise out of it is some people cannot be reflective. So we don't know if Donald Bradman knows how to explain how he hits a ball or Serena Williams knows how she gets something over a net or... You know, a musician knows how to produce a note. There are people who can do that and people who can't. Mm. And medical education, the greatest skill we have is being able to articulate what it is that we do. And that's something that is a, a difficult task. So for me, that's terribly important, being able to stand back and take that meta position and look at what we're trying to achieve in general practice and in some way represent that, whether it's in policy or research or teaching, mm. being able, or even in, you know, popular press, you know, there's a number of times where I've got in there on Twitter or written something for popular press or 
And I'll, I'll tell you a story about this. I used to work with a wonderful GP called Vanessa and we had Choice Magazine who said, is there anything that you wouldn't do as a GP? And um, I said, you know, I wouldn't ignore suicidal ideation being the more serious person. And Vanessa Moran, bless her, comes out with, I wouldn't impregnate myself with a turkey baster from an unknown person if I was in a gay relationship. And I went, Vanessa, I love general practice. (laughs) This is great. And she just went on to give me all the, you know, the legal ramifications and the ethical work because she had same-sex partners um, in her practice all the time. And I thought... I love this. I love this job. I love the people that I work with. But that's reflection in action. That ability to stand back. Yeah. And um, Donald Sean, of course, came up with the great quote that it doesn't matter what profession you're in. There's this high, hard ground overlooking the swamp. And in the high, hard ground are all the nice, neat technical problems that lend themselves to nice, neat technological solutions. Mm-hmm. And everything very clear and straightforward, like the quantitative guys. But it's down in the swamp where we have the great the problems of greatest human concern. And being a qualitative researcher and a GP, you know, I live down there in the swamp and I, I appreciate it. And that's why my Twitter handle is GP Swamp Warrior, which was another <laughs> medical educator who thought that one up. It wasn't me. So um, thank you very, very well for uh, Jared Ingham who came up with that one. So, you, yeah, you do. That was it's really um good explanation of what I was struggling to, to articulate. So thank you for, for, for jumping in there. Um, but you talk about in your, you know, how much, and you've spoken again just now, how much you love working in that, that messy part of it where it is um, quite complex and, and confusing. And I think he goes on to talk, you know, that quote goes on to talk about that, that obviously the, the, the complex and really hard to solve part of it is is often not only the most important but the most interesting. What, mm. why, why do you love that side of it so much? And is it just you know the, the challenge of of trying to solve those problems rather than just taking care of the easy bits and pieces on the top? I think you have to run with your strengths, and maybe I'm just a little bit chaotic. I mean, I can do a quantitative research project, but it's really hard work, and I think it would be like a swimmer trying to play tennis. You know, I just, I don't fit that very well. It's something I have to struggle to do. I've seen my colleagues look at a bunch of numbers and see the pattern immediately. I can't. I have to work at it. And I think it's very similar that I don't think I've got the uh, meticulous brain to be a renal physician. I don't have the, the visual sense to be a radiologist. I think you have to run with what your brain is good at. And one thing that I guess is a thread all the way through, um, I mean, I got into into medicine on my English and music marks, let's be honest. I, I struggled a lot with, with science. I can do it, but it's hard. I think that uh, one of the things that I can do is to look at big picture and to try and draw out themes and to try and bring together a metaphor or an explanation or something that looks at chaos and brings it into some sort of manageable chunk. Um, I I just think that naturally the way my brain was designed and I think that's one thing that I would say to anyone listening to that podcast, you know, work out what you're good at. There's room in this community for everybody. If you choose to stay in medicine, and many of you may not, which part of it do you find easy? Which gets you in flow is what they describe, where you're in the zone and you can just produce. What is it that gives you that sense of flow? And uh, I work with a GP who's on top of all the COVID stuff. I find that hard. I find it 
difficult to get my head around all the different policies. For her, it's this lovely, complex puzzle that she likes to get it all organised and in sequence. Yeah. Um, that's that's not me. And it's great that I work with her and I plot along and, and find out what I need to know, but that's not my strength. My strength yeah. is to communicate complexity. And it's taken me a long time to not feel guilty that I'm not, you know, the world's best proceduralist or I, you know, I found it difficult to do rural obstetrics or that I found it, I find it hard to um, to work with patients with complex physical comorbidity. That's, that's tricky for me. But the patients who are trying to make sense of a chaotic, difficult world and a trauma history, it's not just my experience over a lifetime of doing this, I guess. Although people have chosen me and there's something about that too. The patients have chosen me and therefore I've become the expert. But I think it's also that I've gravitated to something where my mind goes. And my first PhD meeting, I spoke to a supervisor who suggested I might like to do something on the epidemiology of osteoporosis. And I thought about that and went back the second time and went, no. <laughs> no, I can't do this. This is not, you know. And most of the PhD supervisors I approached when I talked about doing something about GPs in um, learning about medically unexplained symptoms said, oh, that's too big, that's too big, you can't do that, it's too big. And I went, well, no, it's broad, but it's not deep. You know, the surface is, you know, the, the volume is the same. It's just instead of being narrow and, and deep, I'm being broad and shallow, and that's okay. But um, I was just sick of people saying all the things GPs don't do. GPs can't do this, GPs don't do this, GPs never do this. You know, it's, it's a bit... Um, exhausting and I was working with a bunch of GPs that I thought were doing a sterling job and I thought it was about time that we captured some of that expertise and I was very fortunate to have wonderful supervisors who helped me do that. So I do think it's about matching your brain to your career a little bit, yeah. Speaking of brain, on the topic of brains, I was going to ask you, 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 you mentioned earlier in the conversation around the, the, the psychology um, teaching that you had mm. been doing. Um, mm. And it's obviously one of those areas in, um, you know, in, in medicine that has, has changed so much um, and the focus is in the way it's sort of managed and approached and understood and appreciated um, has changed so much over time. What, what sort of drew you towards um, mental health and doctors' mental health especially? Because you know, I, I understand you have a special interest in this, in this area quite broadly. Um, what, what was the attraction to, to mental health given that you're interested in all, a lot of the other things that we've already been talking about? Yeah, I think I always was, and I don't quite know why. I mean, I did a psychology degree, although it was all rats and stats in those days. In fact, mm. I had a, a rat. I had to, I had chickens, had to imprint chickens, and I remember carrying chickens into my histology practice and being too quiet. I actually was quiet then, being too quiet and embarrassed to say anything and having these two chickens in my cardigan, po cardigan pockets. So you live and learn. But I think I was always really frustrated. Um, I, I put myself through medicine apart from the scholarship, which I did get, mm. uh, working at BHP. So weirdly enough, I know a bit about metal, but I worked in the welfare department and I learned a lot about hypnotherapy with phobias. Right. Um, so that was quite interesting because heavy industry phobias, um, obviously you can't keep approaching something. You can't sort of do avoidance. Uh, what's it called, exposure and response prevention when you've got a blown-up blast furnace. It's not something you can replicate. So you have to do that with imagination, you know. So I learned a bit there, but I think I was always on the lookout. I thought that if I did a psychology degree, you know, that I'd get into medicine and I'd deal with mental health and it would all be lovely and straightforward because I'd learned the skills, which, of course, 
was um, was not true. Mm. And then I found that the techniques that I was taught didn't work. So I was of the era where I was in the family medicine program. So we did a lot on relationship counselling and interpersonal therapy. CBT was just becoming a thing. Mm. And so, you know, what I was taught was you just have to listen really hard and if people cry, it's a good thing. And, of course, if you go into medicine doing that, you'll be there till midnight. It's just not a strategy. It's a very important thing to do, but you also have to have structure with it, otherwise you drown. And so, and then I landed as the only woman in a big, you know, country or a little country town and got swamped with women who'd experienced trauma, which I knew nothing about. And to be fair, wasn't a lot in the literature at the time either. So it's been this constant quest to try and work out what works in general practice. And I I feel for this generation of graduates who've been told that CBT is that flying pig. You know, I thought the flying pig was active listening um, and it wasn't. And CBT isn't either. You can CBT till you're blue in the face, but it's not going to help you with trauma-informed care. And I don't think that that idea that, you know, you can't, it doesn't matter how many times you try with a complex problem, there'll always be something that's simple and cheap and wrong. Mm. And I think the idea that you can take someone who's lived a life of trauma, who's had intergenerational trauma, who's had a history of abuse, who's got all sorts of expectations and cultural norms and has, you know, significant complex PTSD and you think that six sessions with a retrained hairdresser in a primary health network is going to stop their depression. I think you really are kidding yourself. And I think we are taught that in um, undergraduate often and we're taught that in general practice often and that's not the answer. And any experienced GP will tell you that. Um, The reason I got into doctor's health, I suppose, is both personal and professional, I, people just came to me and you have to learn on the job. But also, I guess I have the lived experience of being the doctor parent of a sick child and just knowing what it's like to live in the tertiary world. And I've written a little bit on this where, you know, the expectations on me, people could be defensive. I was frightened. I was nervous. And yet I would ask a question and I'd get this, well, it's in the protocol. Don't you think you should be following the protocol? Or, you know, the nursing staff would um, realise that I was a doctor and may not explain things as clearly. And I found myself doing what you do as an intern, which is, you know, take a lot of morning tea and give a lot of gifts and be very, very nice and try and get on side. But it was a terribly difficult situation. And actually, my daughter really made it stand out for me. When she was about nine, she turned in the door of the children's hospital and turned to me and said, I wonder what you'll be blamed for today, Mum. Global warming situation in the Middle East? <laughs> I thought, oh, my Lord, she's, she's actually noticed it too. Um, and so we used to send my husband in who could who could act ignorant and everyone would explain everything and then he'd explain it to me. And I realised, my gosh, I can't be the only person who's had this experience. And like every other GP on the planet, of course, I've had my own lived experience of turning up to GPs, some of whom have been absolutely amazing and have, been so supportive and, and so important in my life and other doctors of all ilks um, who've made me feel very small 
one of whom I remember saying to uh, one of my relatives who has Crohn's disease, well, as you'd understand about the anti-leprous agents, and I went, I can't remember the last patient I treated with it, leprosy, so no. Um, so I guess that has coloured my experience. But the work that I did on sexual abuse of doctors by doctors was triggered yeah. by a, a very brave um, young doctor who came to see me and talked to me about her experience, experience of sexual assault from a senior colleague. And I went looking for literature and there wasn't any. And what I remember was that that consultation felt different to all the other sexual assault survivors that I had seen. And I thought, goodness, he's a doctor, she's a doctor, and I'm a doctor. No wonder this is complex. Yeah. And it led me to go looking for literature and there wasn't any. There was there was nothing. There was plenty written on medical students, but it was all either a prevalent study or, look, we've done this really simple uh, webinar on how to be a decent person and we're yeah. making all our doctors do it and that's going to fix everything. And I didn't think it was that simple. So I interviewed a, a number of doctors who'd had this experience and tried really hard to understand what it was that they were living through and how they experienced not just the assault, but also the time before that and the things that they felt had made them vulnerable or had made things difficult for them. And then the long tail of, you know, managing, if you report this, you have to um, keep your silence. And so what was it like living in limbo where they couldn't talk about it? Yeah. And then what was it like when they were exposed in the hospital and it was in the media? And, and then what was it like to restart their careers and, have to live with, you know, the trauma in the longer term and with people knowing their names and yeah. that sort of thing. So I guess that's one thing I'd say about serendipity. You know, sometimes these things chose you and, and this chose me. It wasn't it wasn't something that I I became very passionate about it, of course, but mm. it was it was a, a patient experience. And the medically unexplained symptoms stuff was too. We just we're talking about the, the, the abuse um, side of your research that you were just um Explain what what was that experience like in, in terms of taking on because those are some some incredibly um, horrible experiences to be to be mm. taking on um, and, and mm. you know you you're saying you you've spoken to a number of women who who had these experiences how did you sort of manage sort of the, the emotions that you must have been feeling in that because obviously I'm you know apart from anger and rage there must have been quite a process to be going through. How do you manage? Yep. How do you balance that against, I guess, the ultimate goal, which is to try and and, and, and create something that's going to help, you know, to, to fix this situation through your research. Look, I think whenever you do these things, I was reminded of Roger Neighbor, who said that there's these two little people sitting on your shoulders, and the the left one is your scientific objective person, and your right one is your emotional person. I think it's terribly important to recognise both. So I did some objectively scientific things. So for instance, I had a long conversation with my co-authors about who who was the right person to do these interviews. And we decided it was me. Now we could have chosen not to. We could have said, no, 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 you're you're an insider. You should get a more objective person to do this. But I decided I had the skills and strategies and the structures in my head to be trying to do this in both an objective and an empathic way at the same time. Right. You know, the ethics process took me six months to write the ethics application and it got through. But without that 
thinking behind it, it would not have been safe. Mm. You know, I made sure that the way that I recruited was hands-off and, you know, we did all that sort of stuff. So, you know, you don't go into these things just being a nice person. You don't try to um, – there there's a whole theory behind that that you know, and I guess I've, I've done a master's in qualitative health research and I'm a GP who does mental health. So those two skills were really uh, important to me. Um, to go into that research. On the other hand, how do you manage the empathy is that you you give the participants choice. I interviewed these women over a number of years. It wasn't that I just did this once. I talked to a lot of people who'd done a lot of this work in a lot of different spaces. So, you know, I went to a, I went to a workshop on uh, uh, with um, the team down in Melbourne who do all the work on um, domestic violence and talked about ethics and how they manage that. You know, you stand on the shoulders of giants, you really do. And I think you have to um, take that theoretical approach at the same time as you take the passionate approach. I'm very fortunate I have a, a very supportive husband. But the other thing I'll say too is that, you know, ever since I started in Sydney, I've had a clinical supervisor, so a psychologist, who I can work with when I've got the really complex patients I'm stuck with, where I feel like I, I've come to a, you know, I might have strong feelings about them, might be very, you know, feel very close to them, or feel like I can't stand them, and I'm trying to work out what I do with these people. You know, you have to have something. It's either a, a bailment group or a peer group. I chose a one-on-one psychology supervisor who supervises psychologists. That's what she does. Mm. And so from my point of view, I used her as a supervisor and she helped me in this too. Um, and, you know, she's got that net of confidentiality over her head. I trust her not to repeat. I don't use names, but I do trust her to do that. And that works for me. Yeah. Other people do it differently, but that works for me. And without that, matrix I don't think I would have felt comfortable and remember all that research was done on nights and weekends and the other two jobs I was doing was clinical work and working at the Department of Health so those two jobs were not in this space if I had been doing sexual assault work all day and all night I don't think I would have kept well yeah look we're running out of time but I just Normally with with these interviews, I like to ask people at the end of it what sort of advice they might have for anyone who might be following in in your footsteps, whether in, in any of the various sort of um, career um, directions that, that we've talked about mm. that you've had. And I think it might be maybe it's it's the teacher in you that that um, that we were talking mm. about earlier, but you've sort of provided a lot of that advice throughout as we've sort of gone mm. sort of quite organically. But is there anything else that, that you think you would like to add? Um, what we've been talking about if, if anyone was wanting to get into whether it was GP teaching and training space or, or, or um, academic research what um, is yep. there anything that, that that you would have to to, to to advise those people where to start yeah I've got I've got three things to say it's always nice having things in groups of three when you're an educator <laughs> Absolutely. So the, the first thing is you know it's okay to be the person who doesn't know and chooses to do it anyway um, I, a number of my jobs I, I haven't known much when I've started. I'm, I'm editing an international book on sexual abuse in medicine now because I presented my research around the world and found a whole lot of other people. You know, there's very smart people writing chapters in this book and it's very intimidating and I've never written a book, but you know what? Um, 
you just got to learn and you're good at learning and you just got to keep resting on that. So, you know, don't sell yourself short. If there's one thing a doctor's good at, it's learning. So you don't have to take on a job that you're already expert at. You often get that sort of feeling that that's what you should do, but I don't think it is. Um, the second thing is that take up serendipity. You know, if there's a job somewhere, make it small, do a six-month something in it and see if you like it mm. and learn about yourself in the process because a number of these jobs, you know, be part of a little research project that the Primary Health Network's doing. Put your hand up to um, be involved in a bit of educational research if you're a supervisor, you know. Just collect some data. See if you like that sort of thinking uh, before you decide you want to do a PhD or you want to be a researcher. And there's plenty of ways of dipping your toe in the water and I'm mm. really happy for people to look me up and you know email me if you like. But the third thing I think I've learned is that most of the work that I've poured my heart and soul into is not doing doctoring, it's being a doctor. You know, who do you want to be when you grow up? I say that a lot and I'm still asking that question of myself. You know, your worldview, your values, your your skills and capacities, your self-knowledge is all about who you are. And you can be that person and do different things. But you sort of got to know where your strengths are, where are you in flow, where, what comes easily to you and what sort of jobs allow you to be that person. You know, that's the thing that I think I've realised. I've wasted time. You don't waste any time, but anyway, I've tried to do jobs where I'm not a natural fit, where it's really hard work. And you can do that if you believe in it and it's something you need to do. Being a bureaucrat was one of those for me. And it taught me a lot. I don't resent that at all, but it didn't come easily. Mm. And I think you produce your best work clinically in research in teaching in policy when it's something that comes with who you are. There's 35,000 GPs around the country. We don't all have to do the same thing, you know, and I think that's something that took me a while to learn and I would encourage you to look around you and have a look at who is the person in the community that you want to be when you grow up and Michael Kidd's one of mine. Mm. I could never do his job, you know, I could never. He is an extraordinary statesman and his, his head for policy is extraordinary and mm. that's not me, but... There are people like that where I say, I would like to have his statesmanship, you know. That's what I want. I want to be, and he's taught me a lot. I've watched him and learned from him, you know. And I've learned from people who are not like me, different parts where I go, yeah, that, that's something I want. I want to be collegiate. I want to grow a community. That's, you know, that's who I want to be. And I think that's the skill is finding out who you are and then working out what a person like you should be doing. I think that's some excellent advice to end on. Thank you so much for, for your time this afternoon, Louisa. I, we've, <laughs> our listeners, we, it's been a, a tricky one trying to find time in, 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 the, in the schedule, so I really do appreciate at the end of a, a long Monday afternoon that, that you've given us as much time and advice and, and, and some really valuable stuff to take away. So thanks again for your time, Louise Stone. No worries. Thanks, everyone, and all the best to all of you. Thank you once again to Associate Professor Louise Stone for her time. Some really great perspectives and advice there. Just a reminder that to find out more about Creative Careers in Medicine resources, upcoming events and the membership program, just head over to creativecareersinmedicine.com. This has been an Embrace Creative production for Creative Careers in Medicine. Thank you for listening once again and I'll be back with more interviews soon.